Welcome to Double Deal, a series about organized crime in 20th century Boston. The stories of our central character, Richard Tchaikovsky. The criminals, the crimes, and the law enforcement officers who ruled the streets. Nina and I will be your guides through the darkest streets of Boston, telling you the true stories of criminals, crimes, and lies. Hi, everyone. Since Jack Kelly and Pearl Lerner were both rumored to have been approached by the CIA to kill Castro, and Dad and the rest of his crew made multiple appearances in the FBI 302s released as part of the JFK assassination documents, we felt it would be appropriate to dedicate an episode to those rumors and those rumored to be part of some of those plots. As I've mentioned in previous episodes, when I was a kid, I frequently heard chatter about how the CIA approached Jack to use his crew, including Dad, to take out Castro. Like most of the things I overheard, I'd mumbled to myself, yeah, okay, and shrugged it off as delusional. But in the late 90s, when the first F documents were released and I became more interested in Dad's colorful past, I realized there was some validity to some of those insane stories. We'll be discussing Sam Giancana, Richard Kane, and Dominic Bartoni, among others, and of course the mob's relationship with Cuba. I think we should discuss the casinos in Cuba first, as it's the link to both sets of conspiracy theories about the plans to assassinate Castro and the assassination of JFK. Two of the biggest names in the casino industry in Havana were Meyer Lansky and Charles Lucky Luciano. Both of these men assisted the ONI, Office of Naval Intelligence, during World War II by enlisting wise guys to help keep the dock safe. But Lansky made releasing Luciano from prison part of the protection agreement. They recruited Joseph Lanza, a Sicilian-born union organizer, to use his men to ensure that no Nazi saboteurs would infiltrate the port. Soon after the end of the war, Luciano was deported and returned to his native Sicily. Then in 46, he returned to the Western Hemisphere for the Havana Conference. It was the largest gathering of mobsters since the Atlantic City Conference of 1929. Luciano convened the meeting on December 20th. Representatives from New York City, New Jersey, Buffalo, Chicago, New Orleans, and Florida were in attendance. It wasn't just mafia members, but also representatives of the Jewish syndicate. A separate meeting was held amongst the mafia members to discuss the position of Capo de Tutti Capi, the boss of all bosses. The last one to hold that position was Salvatore Maranzano, who was killed in September of 1931. The position was replaced by the commission, which served as a board of directors minus a CEO. But Luciano wanted to retain the position as the boss. Vito Genovese had other ideas. He allegedly put the idea to a vote. His ally, Albert Anastasia, seconded the motion. Frank Costello also agreed as behind the scenes they would rule as a triumvirate. Genovese was cornered and not only agreed, but also agreed to settle his beef with Anastasia. Some of our locals also made the trip to Havana, while Luciano was still there. In February of 1947, Buzzi Morelli, who we'll be talking about in next week's episode, went to Havana with two New Yorkers, Philip Lombardo and Anthony Fat Tony Salerno. Gambling in the casinos weren't the only topic of discussion. The international narcotics trade was also on the table. Luciano had been a small-time peddler in his teens before graduating to trafficking heroin in the 1920s. Cuba would be the distribution point for the U.S. One of Luciano's partners in narcotics was Joseph Profaci. Profaci was once the largest importer of olive oil and tomato paste in the U.S. and used his import business to smuggle narcotics for decades. Gitano, Tommy Brown, Lucchese controlled the heroin distribution in Harlem. And last but not least, Joseph Jobananas Bonanno. He, along with his cousin, Buffalo boss Stefano Magadino, made the American Mafia's expansion into Canada possible through the heroin trade. 
Like the casino industry, with the fall of Batista, the heroin trade would need to find a new outlet. Meyer Lansky had been dealing with Batista since his first trip there in 1933 with several suitcases of large bills. It would be nearly 10 years before Batista managed to overthrow the government in a military coup. During that time period, Vegas had caught the eye of the syndicate. Benjamin Bugsy Siegel was moved out west to oversee the race wire service, the heroin trade through Mexico, and the completion of the Flamingo Hotel, which opened its doors six days after the Havana Conference. Fast forward to New Year's Eve 1958. Castro had been waging a guerrilla war against the Batista regime since 56. The mob had actually been shipping arms to both sides in the conflict. Their hope was that whoever won in the end would be grateful and they'd still be able to use Cuba for their various interests. Castro ultimately overthrew Batista's government in another military coup. This event would cost the syndicate tens of millions of dollars in annual revenue. But it wasn't just the mob that was heavily invested in Cuba. In the late 1950s, U.S. companies owned 90% of Cuban mines, 80% of its public utilities, 50% of its railways, 40% of its sugar production, and 25% of its bank deposits. ITT Corporation even presented Batista with a golden telephone. According to then-Senator JFK, it was an expression of gratitude for the excessive telephone rate increase. But in early 1959, the Mafia still thought that they could use the situation to their advantage and hoped that Castro could be bribed. Enter Dominic Edward Bartoni, a gangster whose Mafia ties reputedly went back to the days of Al Capone. Bartoni was a burly man with thick black hair and dark eyes a, quote, typical hoodlum appearance. According to his FBI file, he classified people as either solid or suckers. He was closely allied with the head of the Teamsters, Jimmy Hoffa, whom he called the greatest fellow in the world. Bartoni was also a known associate of Santo Traficante. During the spring of 1959, Louis Babe Trescaro, the VP of the Ohio Conference of Teamsters and a Hoffa guy, shuttled back and forth between his home in Cleveland, office hotel, and official headquarters in D.C., Miami hotels, and Havana itself. Triscaro later claimed that he went to Havana and Miami with Bartone as a favored Alvin Naiman, whom he had known from the time they were together in boxing in Cleveland in the 30s. Naiman was the front man for Acros Dynamics, which had reportedly purchased some surplus Douglas C-74 Globemaster military cargo airplanes off of the Air Force. The Air Force had retired the planes because there were no spare parts and the planes were deteriorating. But instead of selling them for scrap, they put them up for sale in 1957. Acros was established in April of 1957 for the sole purpose of buying those planes. The auction was opened on July 19, 1957. The company was the only one to show up to the table, submitting a bid of $150,000 for seven of the aircraft plus spare parts. The catalog clearly stated that the photos did not represent exactly what the Air Force was selling. The purchase did not include radio equipment, autopilot, navigation equipment, engine analyzers, and numerous other electronics. The Air Force was only selling the base aircraft, mechanical spares, and engines. Even so, the Air Force rejected the only bid they'd received, saying the spare engines were worth at least a half a million dollars. Acros increased their bid to a little over $1.5 million for all 11 aircraft, plus three spare engines, which the Air Force ultimately accepted. Through a series of events that is very convoluted and filled with gunnips and backstabbers, Acros had acquired exactly one C-74 by late March 1959. Hoffa had allegedly attempted to siphon $300,000 from the Teamsters' pension fund to float the deal, supposedly as a way to help out the Mafia. 
Dave Triscaro later told the feds that he had met Dominic Edward Bartoni in 1955 when Bartoni was engaged in the trucking business, hauling sand and gravel during the construction of the Ohio Turnpike. Their association at that time was chiefly that of employer, on Bartoni's side, and representative of employees, Babe's role with the Teamsters. Triscaro stated that he knew nothing about Bartoni's background or family. Bartoni was keeping his background so secret, in fact, that he was living under an assumed name. Luigi Charles Ebersese had been born in Jersey City on August 8, 1913, to Eduardo Ebersese and Giovannina Liberatore. The oldest son, he'd left home by the time he was 17 and was living in Detroit when he registered for the World War II draft. He left both of his, both his emergency contact and employment information blank. Back home, his parents moved the rest of the family back to New York, and his father got a job with the WPA. At 6.30 in the morning in late July 1939, three shots rang out in the family's apartment in the Bronx. Two bullets hit Mrs. Abersese, killing her instantly. Another bullet was launched in the wall of the apartment. Edward Abersese fled, taking the murder weapon with him. He was found three days later, wandering along the Erie Railroad tracks in Patterson, New Jersey. His children said he'd been acting paranoid for several days leading up to the murder, believing that someone was out to get him. By the time he got married in Indiana in 1952, Louis Abrusese had reinvented himself and became Dominic Edward Bartoni. It doesn't appear that the feds ever dug up this information on Bartoni. In fact, Hoover seemed pretty uninterested in Bartoni's life prior to him showing up in Miami in 1959. Bartoni first visited Havana on February 19, 1959, to promote the sale of the airplanes. With him were Babe Triscaro and Ben Dranow, both Hoffa associates. They stayed two days and returned to Miami on February 21st. Multiple flights were made to Havana by Bartoni, Triscaro, and Naaman over the next six weeks as the negotiations dragged on. Most of the flights were piloted by Chauncey Holt, a close associate of Meyer Lansky. Naaman flew to Miami on March 18th to meet with Triscaro. Holt flew the two men to Havana the following day, where Bertoni and Bendrenau were waiting for them. Two days later, the C-74 arrived in Havana, where the plane and its crew were greeted by a large crowd, which included Naaman, Triscaro, Bertoni, Drenau, and William Alexander Morgan. A mercenary and reputed CIA agent, Morgan had fought with Castro and had been given the rank of major in the new Cuban Armed Forces. He was also head of the Cuban Provincial Police. Morgan was supposedly representing Castro in the negotiations for the C-74s. But prior to fleeing to Cuba, Morgan had been Dominic Bartoni's driver in Cleveland and Toledo, Ohio. He had been convicted of robbery in Ohio in 1948 and sentenced to five years. He escaped the following year, committed another robbery, and received five more years. His father later told the FBI that he believed that Morgan had been smuggling arms to Cuba since 1955. Again on March 30th, Triscaro and his small team first met in Miami and then flew back to Cuba to discuss the aircraft sales. Two days later, the Castro government announced that it would buy anywhere from four to ten of the Globemasters, each of which carried over $1 million worth of armaments. Keep in mind that at this point in the story, Acros had only one plane in their possession. Babe Triscaro returned home feeling good about a job well done, but the deal with the Castro regime collapsed not long after that. Now stuck with an airplane, but still no buyer, Bartoni decided to try selling it to the Batista forces who were trying to regroup in the Dominican Republic. He obtained a permit for a demonstration flight to Puerto Rico to show the airplane to potential buyers. He stated that there would be about $65,000 in spare parts on board. 
He filed a flight plan showing a route to Puerto Rico, but as soon as the plane had leveled off outside of in, in Miami airspace, he'd fake engine trouble and divert the plane to Santo Domingo. Once there, he'd sell the plane for $400,000 to the Batista forces. At about 10 a.m. on May 22, 1959, as the plane was being loaded in Miami with 200,000 rounds of 45 caliber ammo and machine guns, Bartoni and his accomplices were arrested. Bartoni was indicted on June 4th and held on $5,000 bond and charged with conspiracy to export munitions illegally and to bribe federal officials with $100,000. For this money, customs agents were to permit the C-74, packed with more than $1.25 million worth of contraband guns and ammo, to take off from Florida. That didn't bother Babe Trescaro, though. On May 28th, a week after the arrest, Trescaro and Bartoni were back together, sharing a hotel room in Miami. Throughout the summer of 1959, Bartoni used Alvin Naiman's telephone credit card to make calls to William Alexander Morgan in Cuba. For his part, Alvin Naiman claimed that he had first met Bartoni in about January of 59 when Bartoni showed up at his office. Bartoni told Naiman that he understood that Naiman owned some surplus Globemaster planes and that he, Bartoni, had a buyer lined up. Naiman also claimed that Bartoni was broke and had asked him for a loan of $2,000 until the deal could be consummated. Bartoni's arrest aroused the interest of the Senate Rackets Committee and its chief counsel, Robert F. Kennedy, who had been investigating links between Hoffa's Teamsters and organized crime. The committee initiated hearings that dragged out through the summer of 1959. The stars of those hearings were the Kennedy brothers, Bobby and Jack. The hearings showed that low-level union leaders in Cleveland were involved from the start in the arms sales scheme with Akros. It was never determined definitely if the Teamsters had always had an interest in Akros or if they came in later when Akros encountered financial difficulties related to a loan that they'd taken from the Pan American Bank of Miami to purchase the aircraft. Babe Triscara refused to testify, pleading the fifth. Dominic Bartoni wasn't called to testify because he was waiting to go on trial for his part in the plot. On December 30th, 1959... Bartoni was fined $10,000 and placed on three years probation. He had previously pled guilty to bribery and conspiracy to violate the the Neutrality Act. That fine was later reduced to $7,500. The judge revoked his probation in September of 1962 for participating in another arms smuggling plot, this time to export $109,000 in arms to the government of Honduras. The accomplice was a con man named Edward Browder. Bartoni took the stand in his own defense and testified that he had offered Browder the use of his bank account in a Panamanian bank to handle the financial part of the transaction. In return, Bartoni would get a cut of 10%, but he claimed that he thought that the deal involved electronic parts, not weapons. He was then sentenced to one year imprisonment, but released pending appeal. The case ended up in the U.S. Supreme Court based on a dispute over sentencing. The Supreme Court sent the case back to the court in Miami for resentencing in October of 1963. Bertoni appealed again in December of 63 and was again released pending appeal, which left him free to run a similar scam, which was also apparently dead on arrival. The Acro scheme was the first of many failed plots to overthrow Castro and his regime, but initially the U.S. government was at pains to smooth things over with the new Cuban leadership. The former U.S. ambassador to Cuba, Earl E.T. Smith, testified in front of the U.S. Senate in 1960. Quote, until Castro, the U.S. was so overwhelmingly influential in Cuba that the American ambassador was the second most important man, sometimes even more important than the Cuban president. Most of the aid from the U.S. to Cuba had been in the form of weapons assistance, 
and completely failed to advance the economic welfare of the Cuban people. Such actions enabled Castro and the communists to encourage the growing belief that America was indifferent to Cuban aspirations for a decent life, end quote. On October 6, 1960, Senator John F. Kennedy, during his campaign for the U.S. presidency, said, quote, Batista murdered 20,000 Cubans in seven years, and he turned democratic Cuba into a complete police state, destroying every individual liberty. Yet our aid to his regime and the ineptness of our policies enabled Batista to invoke the name of the United States in support of his reign of terror. The administration spokesman publicly praised Batista, hailed him as a staunch ally and a good friend at a time when Batista was murdering thousands, destroying the last vestiges of freedom and stealing hundreds of millions of dollars from the Cuban people, and we failed to press for free elections. It wasn't long after JFK's election that his opinion about Cuba drastically changed. On January 3, 1961, diplomatic relations with Cuba were terminated by the U.S., and Cuba's relationship with the USSR grew stronger. It was downhill from there. By April of 1961, the ill-fated Bay of of Pigs invasion took place. Cubans tried to escape, many settling in Miami. The mob's hotels and casinos were nationalized, as well as were all businesses. But the mob's role in Cuba wasn't over. When the CIA began planning to overthrow or assassinate Castro, they turned to the mob. The most notable being Sam Giancana, along with Johnny Roselli of both Chicago and L.A., Santo Traficante of Tampa, and according to Dad and Jack Kelly's statement to Federal Marshal John Partington, also Jack Kelly. According to the story I know, when Jack was approached and asked by the government, how do you kill Castro, his response was, you don't. Jack felt it was suicide to operate outside of your area. He never even pulled a heist outside of his stomping grounds, let alone did a hit. The story that Vinnie Teresa told about the CIA approaching Raymond Patriarca isn't plausible. I've been on this tirade before, but I'm going to rant once more. The timeline doesn't fit. Pro committed two petty crimes in 1961, hooked up with Jack in late of 62, may have committed a couple of small bank robberies in 63, but did no major heists until 65 and the first hit in 65. Exactly. Pro wouldn't have even been on Raymond's radar yet. And as far as the CIA going to Raymond, the man couldn't even take out a local guy running an unsanctioned dice game in his own neighborhood. Who did he have for a hitter? Jackie Nazarian? And that story that New York went to Raymond to use Nazarian to take out Albert Anastasia. When Raymond did need somebody, he had to contact Butchie Maselli, who was living in Jersey, and Butchie complained to his FBI handler that he didn't want to do it. Keep in mind that the plot to use the mob to take out Castro was hatched in 1960. The first mobster who was approached was Johnny Handsome John Roselli. Good old Robert Mayhew acted as the go-between for the CIA and the mafia. Roselli then approached Sam Giancana, and both of them approached Santo Traficante. Traficante was later suspected by Giancana and Roselli of being a double agent of Castro's. Should we give a very brief background on Sammy, Johnny, and Santo? Yes, and we'll do go a little deeper into Mayhew's background as our listeners might be less familiar with him. I'll start with Johnny since he was supposedly the first to be approached. I want to mention that the FBI believed that Johnny's real identity was to be Filippo Sacco. Sources say that he was born Filippo Sacco on July 4th, 1905 in Esperia, Lazio, Italy, and that his father was Vincenzo Saccocame. Special Agent John Kehoe, who you should all be very familiar with by now, was tasked with tracking down Roselli's alleged biological family. 
Kehoe dug up old school records on all of the children in the Sacco family, interviewed possible classmates, tracked down marriage licenses, death certificates, and so on. At one point, it sounded like he was ready to exhume the body of Vincent Sacco, Roselli's supposed father, who had died in the influenza epidemic of 1918. I almost wish he had, because not only would it have been hilarious, but it likely would have put this story to rest. Of course, the gangster genealogist over here had to nose around herself. Here's what I found, and it's nowhere near complete. Vincenzo Sacco arrived in Boston in July 1905 with his brother Louis. The two said that they were going to their father, Filippo, and their sister, Beatrice, and her husband. This all checks out. Beatrice and Filippo had arrived about a year prior and stated that they were going to Beatrice's husband. It's unclear if they were already married back in Italy at that point or not, but they did marry in Boston shortly afterward. And by the 1910 census, the other siblings had joined the family in Boston and they were all living together. Vincent says that he's married, but his wife isn't with him. Filippo Sr. was not with them either, which indicates to me that he was deceased, but I haven't found a death certificate, so I can't prove that. Kehoe thought that Filippo Sr. died in 1917, but the math doesn't check out. He's got Filippo's birth year calculated at 1857, and the birth year should have been closer to 1852. Then, in September 1911, Maria Antonio Pasquale arrived in New York with a six-year-old boy named Filippo. The document clearly states that Filippo's father is also Filippo and that he's still in Italy. Maria says that the two of them are going to Boston to Vincenzo Sacco. The address is incomplete, and someone went in later and wrote the address that's in the 1910 census. I'm not saying it's untrue exactly. My own suspicion is that it's more like the Angelo Bruno story. Vincenzo Sacco probably wasn't the boy's father, considering that Vincenzo's arrival in the U.S. is one day before Filippo Sacco is allegedly born. Kehoe also had a possible birth date of 1907 on the kid, which would definitely mean that he wasn't Vincenzo's. But I really do wish that Kehoe had exhumed that grave. The feds had a huge file on Roselli, so I definitely want to come back to this story when we do the Spies and Wise Guys episodes. Sam Giancana was born on July 16th, 1908 in Chicago, Illinois, to Antonio Glancana Giancana and Antonia DiSanese. Antonio was from Pertana, Trapani, Sicily, and Antonia was from Marsala, Trapani, Sicily. Sam was the second oldest of eight kids. His World War II draft card said he was five feet, nine and a half inches tall, 166 pounds with black hair and brown eyes. He was a member of the 42 gang in Chicago and earned a reputation as a getaway driver, an earner, and a killer. His first conviction was in 1939 for bootlegging. By 1950, he was on the radar of the Chicago Crime Commission. His recent rise to power had caught their eye. Santa Traficante Jr. was born in Tampa, Florida on November 15, 1914 to Santa Traficante and Maria Giuseppe Cacciatore. His parents were from Agrigento, Sicily. He was arrested numerous times during the 50s on bribery charges and uh, and running illegal lotteries in Tampa. He only had one conviction in 54, but never served any time as his conviction was overturned by the Florida Supreme Court before he reported to prison. Robert Ami Mayhew was born on October 30, 1917 in Waterville, Maine, to J. Ephraim Mayhew and Christina Cassabon. Ami was her father's given name, French-Canadian on both sides. Which means I'm related to him, a French-Canadian inbreeding for the win. He was also related to Jack Kerouac. 
Lucky fucking you. He graduated from Holy Cross, then enrolled in law school at Georgetown. In 1941, he was recruited by the FBI as a counterintelligence officer in Europe during World War II. In 1947, he left the feds and began Robert A. Mayhew and Associates, a private detective firm in Washington, D.C. He began working for Howard Hughes in 1955, but never actually met him face to face. But his most steady client was the CIA. On September 14, 1960, Mayhew approached Roselli, leaving out the part that he was contracted by the CIA and offered him $150,000 to assassinate Castro. Roselli introduced Mayhew to Sam Gold, then Sam introduced Mayhew to Joe, Sam Gold being Sam Giancana and Joe being Santo Traficante Jr. The plan to get rid of Castro was initiated under President Dwight D. Eisenhower and continued by President Kennedy when he took office in 1961. This plot had the blessing of Alan Dulles. Giancana then brought Richard Kane into the mix. Kane was born October 4th, 1931 to John Kane and Lydia Scully. Lydia was the daughter of Olimpio Scalziti and Vincenza Grossi. By the 1930 census, they had changed their surname to Scully. Olimpio was from Abruzzo and Vincenza was from Cerealli. Richard often used his mother's maiden name and went by Richard Scalziti. He was a member of the Chicago PD during the 1950s, but also on Giancana's payroll. In 1960, he was assigned as a special investigator for Assistant U.S. Attorney Richard Ogilvie. The investigation focused on Chicago mobster Tony Accardo. By the end of the year, he was in Mexico training men for the Bay of Pigs invasion, which took place in April of 61. Your favorite and Richie's favorite spy, E. Howard Hunt, was one of the three that oversaw that failed operation. Most of our listeners know E. Howard Hunt from Watergate, which means that I have to bring up Tom Priestess, who also had a link to Watergate. Tom was the ball player who went on a many crime spree with Pro Lerner in 1961. You'll recall their failed attempt at robbing a furniture store of $2,400. Pro managed to get caught in seven minutes, but Tom dodged the cops and took off back to Tampa to play ball for the remainder of the season. But in December, he was back in Boston with Pro. This time, they'd cooked up a new scheme, robbing a man named Neil Goldstein. But someone tipped off the cops, and the two men were arrested and charged with conspiracy and carrying a gun in a motor vehicle. Tom had been a boxer prior to joining the Army, where he learned to play ball, but his crime speed with Pro seems to have put an end to his baseball career. The two men pleaded innocent and were held on $2,500 bail. Their case was sent to the Norfolk County Grand Jury on December 15, 1961. Tom received a felony conviction, which would return to haunt him about a decade later. He returned to Pennsylvania and joined his younger brother, Jack, in business. Jack had also played baseball while he was in the Army in Korea. He'd been signed on with the Phillies in November of 1957 and sent to their Tampa club to join Tom, who had been signed on a few months earlier. Jack had once hit three homers in one game, and the Phillies wanted him for his skill with the bat. By 1965, the Priestess brothers were back in Florida. They were principally engaged in the hearing aid business. They obtained a mobile van marked unit number two, but it was their only van. They'd go around offering free hearing tests and then use strong arm tactics to get people to buy their questionable product. They'd operated a similar scheme in the Ohio, Pennsylvania area until hundreds of complaints were lodged with the Better Business Bureau and they were forced to leave. The state of Florida was unable to get them shut down until they stumbled across Tom's felony conviction that he had failed to disclose. But by then, the Priestess brothers had moved on to bigger and better things, scamming the Fair Housing Administration. Jack Priestess claimed that he'd gotten the capital to start his home building business by selling the hearing aid business to an operation in Illinois. 
The feds later seized boxes of the devices in Florida in 1971, saying that they didn't work. Priestess had become one of the most prolific home builders in Dade County history. In January of 72, the Priestess companies received 300 new allocations to build, twice as many as any other builder in the same period. The net profit for each allocation was estimated between, to be between two and three grand. But now the Miami Herald was on his case and breathing down his neck. He later testified to the Watergate Committee that he was offered cabinet-level influence to resolve his mounting problems with the FHA if he contributed $50,000 to the committee to re-elect the president. The cabinet-level influence was HUD Secretary George Romney. According to the agreement, Priestess would pay half up front to get an audience with Maurice Stans in D.C. Stans would then use his influence to vacate the FHA order. Jack Priestess delivered a check of $25,000 to D.C. the same day the FHA announced the suspension at a news conference. But Jack didn't have $25,000 and had to go to a friend to get a loan. The friend knew why they needed the money, but insisted on writing a check out to the RNC. As a result, the check was returned three weeks later. Priestess alleged that Ben Fernandez of the Republican National Hispanic Assembly asked him to get them the money in another way by disguising the payments in smaller amounts and from different people. Priestess then testified that Fernandez sent someone to get the cash, but that he refused to give the person money since he didn't know him from Adam. He called Fernandez in California wanting to know what was going on, but Fernandez brushed him off telling him that he could still give them money, but that he couldn't do anything for them. But a few months later, the Herald revealed that the so-called suspension was only for four priestess companies. Another seven were still allowed to contract with the FHA. Not only that, of the 300 allocations from January, only 50 had been frozen. I know priestess claimed he didn't get any benefit off of those payments to the committee to reelect the president since they never went through, but somebody almost certainly got kickbacks somewhere along the way. He continued developing residential properties in Florida into the 80s. Okay, let's get back on track. The first plan was Giancana's idea. He suggested a man named Juan Orta poison Castro's food. After several unsuccessful attempts, Juan jumped ship and the idea was abandoned. But they didn't give up on the idea of poisoning him with botulism. Instead of food, it would be poison-laced cigars. The plot seemed pretty far-fetched. Others included a tuberculosis-laden diving suit, an exploding cigar, a pen fit with a hypodermic needle laced with poisonous nicotine, and a bomb at Hemingway's Museum. And of course, there was the good old-fashioned gangland slaying option tossed around. One of his lovers was also recruited to poison him, but she couldn't bring herself to do it. Along with the other harebrained schemes were thallium salts to destroy his beard and slipping him LSD before he went on TV to ruin his reputation. It sounds like they were on LSD when they came up with some of these ideas. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> or at least slightly drunk, pretty wasted. <laughs> Somebody, they were on something. Obviously, none of these plans came to fruition, but on November 22nd, 1963, President Kennedy was assassinated. Rumors persisted for years that Castro may have been behind it or the mafia. Well, you know my opinion. I firmly believe that LBJ was at least complicit in the assassination of JFK. I also don't believe that there was only one shooter. And I definitely don't buy that the mafia had anything to do with it, but they were the perfect scapegoat and are happy to continue to this day to perpetuate the myth. Well, there's always more than one shooter in these stories until suddenly it's just a lone wolf. I think of JFK's assassination as more of an internal coup. As for LBJ, he may not have been in on the plot exactly, but he certainly must have known more than he ever let on. And what better way to blackmail a sitting president with the knowledge that you could take him out next? 
I've also always found it interesting that the intelligence agencies have tried so hard to avoid pointing the finger at the Soviets. Although former CIA director James Woolsey's new book claims that it was a Soviet plot originally and that they sent Oswald back to the States to carry out the mission. The Soviets then chickened out and had called off the plan by April of 63, but by then Oswald was already committed and went for it anyway, which I don't buy at all, but then what would you expect a CIA guy to say? Oh yeah, that was us? Well, again, when we get into our spies and wise guys, we'll look more into that. All right, now let's talk about the mob conspiracy theory. We'll start with Jack Ruby since he was connected to Santo Traficante and Sam Giancana. Traficante and Ruby met in Cuba in 1959, and it was believed that Ruby was a bagman for Traficante. Jack was born Jacob Rubenstein on April 25, 1911, in Chicago to Joseph Rubenstein and Fanny Turek Rutkowski, or Polish immigrants. He joined the Teamsters in his late teens, was drafted in 1943, and upon being discharged, he returned to Chicago. By 1947, he moved to Dallas, began working in nightclubs and strip clubs, and along the way changed his name to Ruby. He even worked as a bouncer at his own clubs and was known for having a violent streak. On March 11, 1959, Special Agent Charles W. Flynn of the Dallas FBI office approached Ruby about becoming an informant due to his job as a nightclub operator since he, quote, might have knowledge of the criminal element in Dallas, unquote. Ruby was willing to become an informant but was dropped in October of that year as he didn't provide any information. At the Commission and the House Select Committee on Assassinations, evidence was presented that Carlos Marcello and Santo Traficante Jr. and Jimmy Hoffa ordered the assassination of the president. Part of that evidence was a 25-fold increase in the number of -of out-of-state telephone calls from Jack Ruby to associates of Marcello, Traficante, and Hoffa in the months before the assassination. The committee heard that Ruby had known Sam Giancana and Joseph Campisi, another Chicago Mafia member since 1947, and had been seen in their company many times over the years. The evening before Kennedy was assassinated, Ruby and Campisi had dinner together at Campisi's restaurant. After Ruby was arrested for killing Lee Harvey Oswald, Joe Campisi regularly visited Ruby in prison. The theory was that Ruby took out Oswald to prevent him from talking as the mob had hired him to assassinate the president. Oswald's uncle also had loose connections to Marcello in Louisiana. The night before Ruby killed Oswald, the FBI received a threat against Oswald's life. After he was killed, Hoover issued a statement, quote, Last night we received a call in our Dallas office from a man talking in a calm voice and saying he was a member of a committee organized to kill Oswald. We at once notified the chief of police and he assured us Oswald was being given sufficient protection. This morning, we called the chief of police again, warning of the possibility of some effort against Oswald, and again, he assured us adequate protection would be given. However, this was not done. Oswald, having been killed today after our warnings to the Dallas Police Department, was inexcusable, end quote. Now, back to your LBJ theory. In 1982, Richard Nixon admitted hiring Ruby as an informant for the House Un-American Activities Committee back in 1947. An unnamed official who believed Lyndon Johnson was the planner of the assassination claimed Nixon said that he hired Ruby at the behest of LBJ, one of, quote, Johnson's boys, unquote. A congressional staffer in 1947 sought to prevent Jack Rubenstein from testifying in front of the committee in public. 
quote, it is my sworn statement that one Jack Rubenstein of Chicago, noted as a potential witness for hearings of the House Committee of Un-American Activities, is performing information functions for the staff of Congressman Richard M. Nixon, representative of California. It is requested that Rubenstein not be called for open testimony in those aforementioned hearings, unquote. Despite all the theories, investigations, and hearings, we still don't know the truth about the assassination of President Kennedy. Last month, more of the documents, mostly CIA ones pertaining to the investigation, were released. But there are still thousands that have yet to be made public. I'm highly doubtful that there are any answers hidden away in them. I agree with you. Santo Traficante lived out his days in relative peace. He passed away at a Houston hospital with a heart attack on March 17, 1987. Jack Ruby died in prison of an embolism and cancer on January 3, 1967. Sam Giancana was shot seven times in his home on June 19, 1975. His murder was never solved. Johnny Roselli's body was found in an oil drum floating in Dumbfounding Bay near Miami. The cause of death was ruled asphyxiation. Like Sam Giancana, his murder was never solved. The common theory was that it was mob-related, but considering what they were tangled up in, I have my doubts about that. I agree. Next week, we're going back to New England. The following two episodes will focus on the hill, Federal Hill, that is, in Providence, Rhode Island. The first part will be profiling some of the characters and their crimes. In part two, the feuds will be the topic of discussion, and we hope you continue to listen. Please share an episode, subscribe, and write a review. Bye. Bye. Double Deal, true stories of criminals, crimes, and lies.